0: For listening to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast, I am your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my good friends at Booking Protect, the global leader in refund protection. Any booking, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered. To find out how your organization can offer your guests a better buying experience, increased peace of mind on their purchases, and how you can create a brand new revenue stream for your organization, visit www.bookingprotect.com. Again, that's bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. Now, my guest today was someone who was a lot of fun. Uh, it's Corey Leff, and he is the man behind the John Wall Street newsletter. Um, I have been following along with the John Wall Street newsletter, um, I think, from pretty early on. And I find it really interesting because You know, it has a different take on sports business than it often is shown. Uh, Corey does a great job of really digging into the story. And something that I didn't recognize before but makes total sense for the way he covers the sports business uh, is he works on Wall Street, and he is an analyst. So it all became very, very clear. Um, We had a a really good conversation. Uh, One that was really interesting to me, we talked about, um, lessons he's learned being in startups, right? John Wall Street's not his first time in a startup. And what was really interesting is he brought up some of the lessons he learned from failing, which I think is something we don't talk about nearly enough because it's very easy to highlight the successes, but we don't always highlight our failures. Uh, we talked about how his the John Wall Street newsletter will scale and how he doesn't care if they ever get to 2 million subscri- um, email subscribers or not because... His focus is so direct and so precise uh, that it was awesome. And again, that's something that I spend a lot of time talking to my clients and hopefully to you here um, especially people who subscribe to my newsletter, The Business of Fun, about being more focused, about targeting the people you really need to talk to to convert. Um, we talked about how we developed the brand, you know, where things are going to go. Um, then we got into some hot takes on some stories of the day. We talked about the UFC. Uh, we talked about the NBA and some of the things they're doing digitally. We talked about... Um, stories that are interesting to him, things he was interested in finding out. I mean, we had a really, really good conversation, and um, I didn't know Corey coming into the conversation, but I feel like I have a new friend now, and and I hope that comes across because I really dig what John Wall Street's doing, and I really, I really like what Corey's doing, and I think it's like really smart, and I think you should check it out. So here's my conversation with Corey left on the business of fun. I'd like to welcome. Mr. John Wall Street himself, Corey Left, to the Business of Fun podcast. Corey, what's happening? Ah, another another fun week in the world of business or sports business, I should say. Oh my gosh, is any week not fun in sports business or interesting at least at this point? <laughs>
1: Uh, no, I mean, then this was a particularly good one too. We had, uh, early in the week NFL news with, uh, NFL Sunday ticket and the rumors that they might pull out. We had NBA talking about a ban on some Kanye West sneakers. We're closing the week out with a a mega fight at the UFC tomorrow night. Uh, they're going to set all sorts of records for attendance and pay-per-view buys and gate receipts. So, uh, no, it has been a, uh, it's been a full week, uh, with, with every big sport, uh, kind of chiming in there.
0: Yeah, again, it's it's like fun, too, because like there's always like a new angle and there's really a lot of stuff going down. But I don't want to get into the specifics of any sports stories because first I want to start with you. Right. And I want to know a little bit about where the idea for John Wall Street came from, because all of a sudden on my radar pops up John Wall Street. Um, I think Joe Favrito, um, I saw it in his newsletter and I was like, oh, this thing's cool. I'm going to sign up for it. And the more I saw, the more I liked. So. I think the brand 's pretty cool, and I know your newsletter 's awesome. Um, where did you get the idea from, and like how did the whole thing start?
1: yeah, so uh, you know I always say john wall street is real i am john wall street um, I, you know it 's really not a i mean it 's developed into a brand, but it 's really me uh, in terms of everything i 've done and 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 learned in my life um, I went to the University of Arizona with the intention of of pursuing a sports broadcasting career. I grew up in New York, and Mike Francesa uh, was uh, the guy that my dad listened to, and all, you know that became the guy that I listened to. Him and Howard Stern, of course. Um, and and all I ever really wanted to do was talk about sports for a living. Um, you know, never mind the fact that there's not a whole lot of money in talking about. Uh, the game, uh, because there's so many people that are qualified to do that. Um, but I pursued that that uh, that career coming out of high school. Um, I was very aggressive in my pursuit. Uh, I did a couple internships on the Fox lot when I was uh, 18, 19 years old, uh, and, and parlayed those into internships at the Fox Sports uh, Net affiliate in uh, in Arizona where I was going to school um, and ultimately uh, I was on the air one day uh, filling in for the Fox Sports Radio uh, affiliate host um, with the guy I was interning for And we were talking about the NFL draft, which is a a particularly uh, strong subject of mine. And uh, John Rooney, who was in town, he was the voice of the Chicago White Sox at the time, heard me on the air um, and loved me and called the program director, who is his buddy, and said, I just found you guys you know, the next great radio host. And um, I got a call one morning. I was sitting in class uh, as a junior, and uh, the guy I was interning for said, Fox Sports affiliate wants to bring you in and put you on air, um, and, and it was my dream job uh, until, I, uh, until I realized that it wasn't my dream job because there's just not enough money in the, in the business. When I went in, they said, uh, you know, we'd love to have you and we can put you on the air, but we can offer you eighteen five, and there's no room for negotiation. Uh, so, I took it, um, and I think by the time I left, I was at twenty two thousand I think I was asking for thirty thousand, and the guy tells me I can take a four percent raise and and you know i I had to go um, and so uh, at like twenty two twenty three years old, I left my dream job um, just simply because it you know it didn 't allow me to live the life I wanted to live, and I got into uh, I I fell into the startup world. Um, I met a couple guys that had gotten, uh, that were very successful in private banking, uh, particularly uh, private mortgage banking. Um, They had uh, developed some internal technology that they were using and uh, they basically said, hey, listen, if this technology will work for us internally. Uh, it'll work for all the other shops out there, and we're one of the biggest ones. And this is like 2005, 2006 when banking was booming, uh, you know, before the crash. Um, and the way the the mortgage law was was set up, um, fees could be passed along, and blah blah blah. But it was a great business, and they basically said, "Hey, listen, uh, we'll fund it, and you can run it." Uh, and I and I learned business, and I learned it. Um, with a business that became successful. And we ended up launching another startup after that, um, that wasn't successful. And, and perhaps I learned more from the fail or from the failure than I did from the success. But um, that was a great experience in startup. You know, you you do everything, you know, you learn about, uh, you know, sales and marketing and operations, but you're also doing, uh, you know, the finances and the HR and, and you know, filing trademarks and things like that. So. Um, startup was a great experience. Um, I, I never hit the, the grand slam, um, but the first startup we had was profitable for, you know, five, six years and, uh, that was, uh, it was a great learning experience. And back in, uh, early part of this decade, uh, I, I kind of was ready to, to get started again. I moved home, uh, back to New York and I got into the finance world and I was doing uh, equity research and institutional sales. Uh, which basically means that I was pitching investment driven, uh, ideas to, or I am pitching stock ideas to large institutional investors. Um, and that's really where the concept for John Wall Street came about. I was seeing names cross my desk that, um, I knew were sports. uh, They weren't, they were companies that had a sports tie, but they weren't companies you would necessarily consider to be a sports company like, uh, um, uh, Viacom which owns Bellator um, is a good example um, or there's companies that are sports entities that own other sports entities like you might have um, top golf which own oh, excuse me uh, callaway which owns you know fifteen percent of top golf um, and so there were All these names were coming across my desk, uh, that had sports tie-ins and there was just, there's, I I had realized that there was very little coverage of it within the, the traditional sports universe. Um, you know, as I said, uh, my sports talk radio background, uh, kind of allowed me to, uh, spend a lot of time reading through all sorts of sports stuff and, uh, just very little coverage of of sports business and, and even less on the finance side. So, uh, you mentioned, uh, Joe Favorito. um, I had, I you know, I, I had spent time in sports. I spent time in business. I, I learned. I spent time in finance, um, and and that's what John R- Wall Street really is. Um, and I reached out to Joe uh, probably about a year and a half ago. Not just Joe, a whole bunch of guys that I had felt were uh, particularly um, established and well respected within the the sports business or sports media landscape. And I said. I had written 30 or so stories. Um, and I basically said, Hey, what do you, what do you think about this? I don't want anything from you other than an honest opinion. Um, and Joe said, uh, and not just Joe, but all the feedback was positive. But Joe in particular said, not only do I think you have a great idea. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of had this idea for a while, but I think I know how to execute it. And, um, you know, I'm certainly smart enough to know, uh, you know, when to listen and, uh, I basically said, listen, I, you know, I I can do the sports business stuff. And if you can direct me how to to build this uh, within the sports business community in the sports world, um, I'll follow your lead. And um, and so we got rolling. And and here we are, uh, you know, 18 months later, 20 months later, and uh, really starting to kind of make a name for ourselves.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a super awesome uh, newsletter, you know, and it comes Monday through Friday, and I and I get it, right? This is which is how I found you, and you know how I reached out. And what interests me about what you just said with with your story, though, is that you were involved in a couple startups, and one went very well, and then one didn't go so well and that you learn more from failure than from success. And now we can call John Wall Street a third startup. You know, how have some of those lessons you learned from the first two, especially the ones that you failed at, how have they translated to what you're doing now?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the failed one particularly um, changed the way I looked at spending uh, on, on a business um, and then how I thought about going about building the business Uh, because the first business was successful right from the get go. Um we never really struggled in terms of having capital um to market the business or do anything else. Um on the flip side, the reason the second business failed, um it wasn't because we didn't have interest from clients or anything else. Um it was because we ran out of capital before we were able to become profitable. Um and so um there were a lot of things that we spent money on that did not produce a return, um that frankly, we're wastes of money. Um, and so when I, when I launched John Wall Street, um, you know, I had, part of it was I had to convince my wife, um, because we went through a ton of money, um, on, on the failed startup. And, uh, you know, I said, listen, I can build this without pouring a fortune into it. Um, because the only two things that matter with John Wall Street, um, is, is the content and the reputation. Um, it, you know, it doesn't matter if I have 2 million readers. Um, it's most important that the readers are, you know, the 500 people or so that are making decisions in the sports business world. Those are the people that I really want to to, to make sure I have their ear. Um, and, and we've done a really good job of that. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't spend on things that don't, uh, you know, like a people always want to pitch me on revamping the logo and yeah, sure. John Wall Street could rebrand, but for what? Um, you know, nobody, nobody's reading the newsletter because our logo is greater because it sucks. I mean, um, the, the content kind of has to stand on its own regardless. Um, same type of thing with like incorporating, um, you know, filing trademarks and things like that. Uh, you know, we went and filed all these patents and trademarks and, that's great if the business is a success, but when you're a startup and you have your pre-revenue in some cases, uh, when we were at the time, I mean, what do you, what exactly are you protecting? Um, and so you spend thousands of dollars on attorneys and patents, uh, you know, uh, fees and and all this stuff. And great. You have a piece of paper that says that no one else can do it. And it's who cares? It it wasn't successful. So, um, you know, People, you know, no. John Wall Street is not uh, is not patented or you know copyrighted or anything like that at this point. Um, because you know, I just I'm not willing to invest that money in that. Um, if I'm going to invest money in something, it's going to be putting out more quality content.
0: No, no, that's a, that's a great answer uh, because this, you know, me, I work on how you maximize revenue, how you generate money, right? That's pretty much the core focus of mine. And what you said that I was really impressed by because this is something I can't convince people of nearly enough is that you said I only need the f- top 500 business decision makers in sports business to read my thing, right? If I have two million subscribers, who cares if those 500 people aren't reading it, right? How did you realize that and how do you make sure you maintain that focus? Because I know it's both of those are really hard for people. Um,
1: That's a good question. Um, Part of me putting out this newsletter is contingent upon me having access to those people. Um, Part of me being able to provide insight is, is having access to the people that are, um, that are doing the biggest deals, the most successful deals that are the people who are making an impact in the sports world. Um, so it's important that those people know who I am. Um, you know, yes, I'll sell a lot more ads, uh, if we have 2 million subscribers, um, which we probably will never have because I don't think there's 2 million people that care about sports business. Um, that's okay though. Like I said, um, I didn't start this for money, number one. And, uh, but on the flip side, if I can make sure that those 500 people are, are reading it and I know that there's a good portion of them that are, um, then it becomes very easy when I reach out for an interview, uh, to get, you know, access to those people or those people are asking me to do interviews on them, um, giving me unbelievable access. And so, uh, you know, this is very much a, a relationship industry, um, sports business. Uh, so, um, you know, again, I think, you know, establishing a rapport with with the people making the decisions is is crucial.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it is a relationship business. And it's like we were talking about before we even started it. It's also very small. And so like, if you aren't focused on those relationships, then you really have no chance. And, 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 you know, it, it's pay, it pays off for me, right? Like I have people now in, – back in the day, it used to be like I'd have to hound people, right? And now people, they want to talk to me probably the same way they want to talk to you because they understand there's a certain value in, you know, either your platform or your knowledge or both, right? And, you know, and that's mm-hmm. – um, you know, it's nice because – I think you would agree there's not a lot of people in the in- that co- cover the industry, especially they cover it with like a great deal of analysis. And I would imagine coming from like a finance background, the way you look at it is probably much different than anybody else. You know, even me looks at the business side or am I am I wrong? Uh-huh.
1: No, you know, I think. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I shouldn't say that um, because when people look at investing from you know all different perspectives, that you have growth investors and value investors, and so um, how people look at a company, uh, you know, I think is on an individual you know, basis. Um, I I think, you know, the, what John Wall Street, where we provide value is the fact that we're offering context and commentary, um, which is what we really don't get. A lot of people present the story and the facts, um, with a lot of noise. Um, you know John Wall Street, the goal is really to present the story in like three lines um you know I can tell you the facts in three lines um and then tell you about why it matters uh you know why do, how does it impact you know the business or the company uh, or the parent company or the investors and then and who are the investors if there are investors um and then how you know what does it mean to the sports world and uh, so you know I mean just an example you know from this week, I wrote a piece today on ufc two twenty nine and and the the story was about how uh you know they're gonna they're gonna, like I said, they're gonna destroy all sorts of records uh, on Saturday night, um, and we were able to provide some co- finance commentary because uh, actually Endeavor, who owns the majority of the UFC, just bought uh, a temp- you know a, t- a minority uh, stakeholder out um, that had you know acquired a 10% sh- a stake back in 2010, um, and they'd like returned like 250 percent on their investment so um, you know we were able to provide some insight on the finance uh, as to uh, who owns you know that stake and what it was worth and and what that investment looked like and then on the, you know on the uh, on the uh, on the the, the the sports angle you know we were able to provide some insight on on the actual fight and uh, you know what talking about the fighters talking about the you know Connor's you uh, you know, liquor company talking about, uh, Khabib fighting a bear when he was a kid, you know, the things that sports fans want to talk about. <laughs> fighting a bear. Um, yeah, that's the best story ever. I, mean, I know, right?
0: It's so great.
1: It's ridiculous. <laughs> and the fact that there's video, it just makes it even more ridiculous. Like the guy's father actually took him into the woods where he had chained up a bear cub and said, wrestle. And... He he videotaped,
0: and the guy was the kid was eight years old. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this, you know, before we go off too much on the, some of the stories, because I do want to touch on a, a couple of stories that we um, I made notes about. But knowing that you have um, a history, you know, a couple startups under your belt, really focused on a specific market really focused on having learned from some of your failures and success previously, what does the business look like for you right now? You, you know, how, how, what's it shaped like? What's, um, you know, how do you make the business run? Do you have any exciting new ideas that you're about to push out or want to push out or anything you're kind of figuring out if it works or not?
1: Yeah. So, um, John Wall Street isn't my day job yet. Um, I'm hoping at some point in the future it will be. Um, So at at this point, it's it's still very much about me building a brand and the reputation and and picking up subscribers. Um, So so, yes, a large portion of what I'm focused on is kind of diversifying content and platforms. Um, I have the daily newsletter, which comes out Monday through Friday. Um, we have a daily, excuse me. Uh, I have a, a weekly short video series on Mondays and Tuesdays at 11 AM. We release uh, short videos. They're usually about two and a half minutes. Uh, and they're, I always compare them to, um, the parting shots on the sports reporters. You remember, you remember sports reporters? Um, so, uh, you know, they're two and a half minutes. We set up the story and then we give, you know, a hot take, but, it's not you know why lebron's better than kobe it's you know uh why this business story impacted the business and you know whether it was a good decision so um you know so we do that uh so i'm getting more heavily into video um and i'm actually going to be introducing a podcast series also uh probably within the next 2 weeks the video series is already rolling um we release the videos on youtube we also release them on our uh, our uh, so the john wall street has a youtube channel uh, we also released them on uh our instagram uh, or excuse me on our twitter uh handle uh which is uh, at howie Longshort uh our, our finance analyst
0: and, and i'll make sure i linked all this stuff because i didn't even know about the youtube channel i'm, I'm slipping here You're, yeah, no i'm we, supposed to know everything when i ask these questions we
1: haven't we haven't really been promoting it because the, the video stuff is really new um it, it, I, I think i've done about 15 episodes maybe 20 episodes um and we're cranking out two a week so Um, Mondays and Tuesdays at 11 a.m. And those are fun. Uh, you know, people get to see what, what John Walshard actually looks like. And, uh, you know, I just get to provide some, uh, like I said, you know, hot takes for lack of better term. Um, and then the podcast is going to be different. The podcast is not going to be this type of podcast. Uh, it's, It's going to be, uh, interviews with high profile, uh, athletes, business executives, team executives, um, sponsors things like that uh that'll be able to provide some real insight so uh it'll be you it'll be me just kind of uh asking the questions and and the listener getting a whole lot of info from the expert
0: so you're instead of having a conversation it'll be more like a typical journalist interview that you would imagine is that right
1: yeah they're almost they're gonna be like fireside chats
0: Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to feel like we, we ha- I, I try to have more of a conversation with my sports business experts, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. These
1: are more, these are more um, like, uh, you know, set up answer, set up answer.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's uh, I think that's good because I don't necessarily see nearly as many of them as we used to see. Because I mean, I grew up with that Sunday conversation was like must-watch TV, where they would be watching on the ESPN, and you you know Michael Jordan or you know Lawrence Taylor, whoever would be, come on. So that that'll, that I think that'll be fun for people.
1: Um, yeah, and and everything we do is short form. So the pod, the, you know, our newsletter, it, you know, all the stories are under five hundred words. Uh, the, pod, the the video is two and a half minutes or under. Uh, the podcasts are going to be like ten to fifteen minutes. Everything is short you know and i think it's you know it's it's designed to be able to get you a whole lot of information in a, in a real you know small amount of time
0: well let, let me ask you this question then and then I want to move on into some of the uh, some of the stories that interest us you know like a little hot take round or something like this but how do you <laughs> how do you how do you keep stay fresh on the stories like how do you make sure that you um you know you don't get kind of lost in sort of the PR speak and you know how you make sure that you're giving your audience something that's unique and different because Sometimes it's like you do hear a similar story from you know three or four different teams or three or four different sources, and you, you can kind of become numb to it a little bit. And you you know if you're not careful, you can go through the motions a little bit, and you know that's a danger. So how do you keep how do you fight back against that? How do you keep the story fresh and interesting?
1: Well, for for one, I source all my own stories. Um, I'm not relying on other newsletters that are doing aggregation, um, where you know so a lot of these. Uh, newsletters that I subscribe to within the sports or sports business industry are just literally repeating the exact same story. Um, It's almost as if they are cherry picking stories from each other's newsletters, uh, which they probably are. Um, So I don't, I I use those newsletters for informational purposes, but not to source stories. Um, I have like 200 Google alerts set up um, of companies in my universe. um, And, I I honestly, I just kind of sort through them, um, and and, you know, kind of read line by line by line, and try to pick out the stories that are most interesting. Um, I I read everything um, nonstop. My wife is, you know, constantly annoyed that I don't put my phone down and I'm on Twitter. Um, but I'm always reading, um, and it's, it's kind of, you know, in the equity research business, I've heard, um, you know, the, my, my boss, uh, say a thousand times that our analyst sh- job is to be curious, to be readers, um, to, you know, if they see something interesting to find out more about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I- I'm looking for stuff that, uh, is really, I'm, I'm not looking for minutia. I don't care uh, if, you know, DeMarcus Cousins signed a deal with Puma yesterday. Um, that isn't helping anybody except for DeMarcus Cousins. Like, that doesn't help Puma. That doesn't help the Warriors. That doesn't help the fans. Um, so why is that even being talked about? Um, so, but it is. I mean, Google DeMarcus Cousins and Puma, and you're going to see like a 100 stories, and they're all the exact same facts uh, with no insight or context um, and providing absolutely no value. So,
0: um, I, you know. I'm going to go write a, a, a blog post later about why, the, why, why Puma's deal with Demarcus Cousins is irrelevant. Just I'm, for you. <laughs> Just for you.
1: <laughs> so, um, you know, it's. I, I I try to write stories and things that matter. You know, I wrote a story about the UFC Breaking Records this week. I wrote a story about the NHL, um, and and how they're having success not just in non-traditional markets here, like cities like Vegas and, and Anaheim and San Jose. Um, they're having success or, or they're trying to grow in countries like China, which is fascinating. Like I actually read this morning that the Devils schedule 12 afternoon games so that the the games would air in prime time in China um, so that they could build the audience there. So like just fascinating stuff like that. Um, you know, I wrote about the sports memorabilia market this week. Um, and, and of course HBO throwing in the bo- the, their towel on boxing, which is really a, a story about um, you know how the the boxing industry has changed um and and it has changed dramatically over the last 12 months with the uh with the emergence of OTT streaming and and the new players that are looking for content so um I, i'm looking for big stories um stories that matter uh stories that impact the the sports world um and i'm really trying to avoid you know those like like you said kind of the the PR my minutia that gets sent around. Um, you know, I don't care if you, you know, XYZ company signed a partnership with the WNBA, like great. Um, you know, that's nice for everybody involved in the partnership, but the average reader is probably not going to care about that. So I'm not going to write a story about that.
0: Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And, 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 you know, it is one of those things I do notice is that you don't cover stuff that, if i if i read your newsletter it's something that i'm not seeing anywhere else almost it's almost guaranteed which i appreciate because a lot of times when i create a lot of content not so much the podcast but a lot of the writing stuff i know that i'm coming at it from like a point of view that like a lot of people aren't even thinking of and it's mainly because like you said before about being professionally curious i feel as like a consultant that i should be professionally curious and i should be teaching people things and you know and that's what really comes through when i read your stuff is like obviously you're curious because you're pulling stuff from like crazy crazy things and now knowing that you worked in finance and like we're looking you know as an analyst then that makes all the sense in the world um you know so I, so again I, you know it's it's curious it's interesting to hear that from you um, but let's get into some sports stories real quick and we'll like do a lightning round or something a, a couple stories that we can you know shoot back I want to get your your take on it you know maybe in a little more depth than you or you know with a different perspective the first thing I think that would be interesting to talk about is I want to get your take on some of the broadcast customization I know that like just recently the NBA announced you know different ways for you to be able to buy the final you know two minutes or the last quarter of an NBA game. And I know we were shooting back and forth about that uh, earlier. Um, You know, what's your take on this? And what do you think it says for, you know, the future of the NBA? Um, You know, and I know what I'm interested in too is because we were talking about like how every sport has highlights.
1: Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Um, The the customization of the broadcast is kind of where we're going, Um, not just in terms of being able to, purchase uh you know a certain block of time a quarter or whatever uh which is fascinating because the, the millennial sports fan might not is probably not interested in watching 48 minutes of an NBA game but they're they're not any less interested than any previous generation in watching those last 12 minutes of a competitive game so uh giving them the ability to do that um is an, is kind of a no-brainer um, it's not going to cut into any it, it, there's it's not going to cut into any of their full season fees or anything like that because again it's not targeting the same consumer the guy who's fanatical about his or her nba team um is going to still buy nba league pass for the entire season but, you know they want to watch every game that their team plays uh, that's out of market um you know this is designed for the casual sports fan the casual nba fan um the sports fan really like me that only cares about you know kind of the what matters. Um, you know the first three quarters of an NBA game don't really matter most of the time. Um, you know it's a it's a, it's a fourth quarter game, and uh, I, I really like that. Um, I think they're gonna that's a that's a newfound revenue stream for the league that um, is it seems to be low hanging fruit that I'm actually surprised the other leagues haven't kind of touched on yet. Um, you know like. The NHL, uh, you can't even buy NHL games on a single game basis, which I found to be, um, really interesting. Um, at least not through, uh, the NBC package. Um, as far as the personalization goes, um, I think, excuse me, that not through, that was an NHL TV package. Not, sorry, not through the NHL TV package. You can't purchase an You can't purchase single games. Um, in terms of the customization, uh, I think the broadcasters is really fascinating. Uh, I see, you know, Twitch, you see like those mega streams, right? Like for college football playoffs or the Super Bowl where you have 15 different broadcasts. You can listen to the home team or the away team or, you know, the entry-level fan broadcast or the coaches broadcast. That's fascinating. Uh, the the idea that, you, that we still have... In in I mean, broadcasting hasn't changed in 40 years. You you still have two guys sitting in a box calling a game. Um, you know why are why does everybody have to listen to Joe Buck and Troy Aikman? Like, there are certain people that want to listen to that broadcasting. Great, but there also are plenty of other people out there that might be interesting to listen to and might have other insight. And whether that's a former player. Uh, or your favorite influencer, or just the fanatical Cowboys fan that has a broadcast background. Like, there's, I think there's a lot of other ways to do uh, broadcasting, and now there's obviously the platforms to do it. So uh, I, that's certainly where we're going, which is probably not great news for former athletes, because there's just a lot of the, you know, those high-paying jobs are going to be paying a lot less if people aren't tuning in to those broadcasts and, uh, or aren't tuning in at the same levels. So, um, you know, athletes are going to have to find another way to go cash checks after, uh, after their playing careers are done. But for the, from the fan pr- perspective, that's fascinating. I did a piece with Mia Khalifa earlier this year. Um, do you know who that
0: is? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay.
1: um, and, and, <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> I have to make sure. Um, the, the topic of the conversation was her Twitch broadcast of G League games were drawing like 10,000 people a game. Like, there's no one on Earth that watches the G League. But people were tuning in because they wanted to hear what Mia had to say about the G League game. And, and it wasn't even really Mia broadcasting the G League game. It's her, you know, drinking wine with her girlfriends, and the G League game is on in the background. But like, it's like hanging out with your favorite influencer. And that is... That that's certainly where, you know, sports broadcasting is going. And frankly, I'm surprised it's not already there.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's, it's interesting the way that you've explained the, you know, the broadcast, the customization too, because it seems that, you know, one of the challenges that I think you can see, you know, looking at the sports business right now is there is a challenge of bringing new fans in like the attention for the, to develop a fan is not there. And it seem, would seem like stuff like this would help cultivate a fan base, right? That would make it more accessible for the casual fan because it's a big ask to get somebody who doesn't care about the NHL to sit there and watch three 20-minute quarters or somebody who doesn't have an investment in the NBA to watch 48 minutes of basketball. But if you show them the last four or five minutes of an NBA game, you know, like where it's back and forth between the Lakers and the Warriors now, that might be exciting to somebody, and it might give the a new fan or a, you know a sort of casual fan um, an incentive to consume more and if they consume more, then maybe they have a favorite team, and if they have a favorite team, maybe they start buying merchandise if they will start buying merchandise, maybe they go to a game, they go to a game they may do take all these positive actions, which is interesting about the NHL and the devil's scheduling time you know afternoon games so there' on you know in prime time in China because again once you have to get people involved in the sport and in the game to start with before you can monetize them. I mean, you have to just, you know, you can't just go from, you know, in the deep end, you have to start somewhere where they it's easily accessible for people. And I think this is a really good opportunity.
1: Yeah, no, I, um, I, I love it. Um, I think it's, I, I don't buy the notion that, you know, this generation is any less interested in sports. We just haven't figured out how to measure their, their level of interest yet.
0: Yeah, it's just different. It's not more or less, I don't think. It's just different. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've found this if you didn't already know it the sports business is very slow to change. Um, You know, and it's, you know, and that's just the way it's always been. And there's a book called Soccernomics, if you haven't read it, or if anybody hasn't read it, it talks about it in the context of Premier League soccer, but it, it, it's applicable everywhere. Um it, it, You know, and it's just a slow to change industry. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's bad. Uh, you know, but it is what it is, you know, it is what it is. And you have to understand that. Fine.
1: Yeah, no. I I agree with you. I think also, you know, so like one of the things that everybody, everybody's having trouble selling tickets, right? But we keep building 80,000 seat stadiums. Uh, Why? I mean, that new Ram Stadium should be built for 50 or 60,000 people in LA, right? Instead, you're going to have, they're going to struggle to sell PSLs like every other stadium does. Um, And then you're going to have empty seats. And ultimately, and and even if you sell those PSLs after the first game or two, all the excitement's gone and then you have trouble reselling the tickets. Um, Everybody knows we need to go to more intimate venues. Why are not we building them? Um, You know, the next iteration of stadiums is going to be more intimate because Less people are going to games. I mean, baseball attendance was down four percent this year. Uh, so, um, and that's
0: four percent that's like reported because we know that you know that they are going off of tickets sold. So you didn't have to go far to see that like it's way way worse than that. I mean, it, you know, your lying eyes will tell you that it's bad. It's awful.
1: Yeah, you're, no, you're not wrong. Um, so you know, it's it, it is things. Teams are slow to change, and, and I, I forgot who said it earlier. That, oh, it was uh, Joao Shuedi, um, who I, I spoke to on the um, experiential marketing panel on Monday. Um, but he was talking about how you know the losing teams in sports are willing to try stuff um, because I mean, what do they have to lose, right? They they already aren't drawing any fans or viewers. Um, but the teams that win, they're not motivated to do anything um, because. They're making a bunch of money. People are already interested in their product, and they don't have to. Um, and, and that's certainly not good for moving the business forward.
0: Yeah. So, and speaking of moving the business forward, I got two more that I want to bring up with you, and then I'll, I'll let you get on with your uh, your night. I know your dogs and your kids are waiting for you. Um, the one thing you, you brought up earlier, UFC and McGregor Fright, as we're doing this um, podcast, which is Friday, the October 5th, is tomorrow night. And... Uh, you mentioned that there might be some like this has some real serious implications for the uh, the future of the sport and the health of the sport going forward. Yeah, I mean, I I should probably shouldn't put it in those terms because it's not
1: like if McGregor loses this fight, MMA is going away or the UFC is folding. Um, but yeah, you have a promotion. The guy is he's um, he's by far and away your biggest star. Um, he hasn't fought in two years. The promotion has, uh, hasn't had a pay-per-view buy with a million pay-per-view in two years, um, or a year and a half, whatever the number is. Um, so, but tomorrow night you're going to get 3 million pay-per-view buys. Listen, it's, it doesn't take, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't take a mathematician to figure it out. Connor draws fans and without Connor and, you know, fighting, uh, and headlining cards, uh, there's just not a lot of star power, and not a lot of interest in the UFC. I, I you know, the, I personally could get into just about any card. Um, you know, I'm excited about Nate Diaz fighting at the Garden potentially next month. Um, but the, you know, the average sports fan who you're talking about dropping $64 or $65 on a pay-per-view fight is not buying Nate Diaz headlining a card. Um, they need Conor McGregor headlining the card and, uh, as good of a fighter as Khabib is, and he's, he's a heavy favorite tomorrow night. Um, he's not drawing fans. Uh, yes. He has a Russian fan base, a Muslim fan base that has helped push this card to record numbers. Um, but don't get it wrong. Could uh, McGregor is the draw. Um, Khabib against anyone else tomorrow night, isn't drawing 3 million people.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because – and the reason I brought it up is because it it marks something that I think is a challenge in a lot of sports is that if you focus too much on that one star and you don't – you forget to develop the rest of the stars, which is a problem – it's outside of the scope of what you're working on or what we've been talking about, but it's the problem with the concert industry right now or even a lot of like theater productions where if there's not a star attraction – then you have sort of neglected to develop an audience that is just accustomed to going to the theater, going to concerts, going to the UFC, going to baseball, football, whatever. If there's no star attached, and, and I think it's unhealthy. Which brings up our final topic that I want to bring up, which is Tiger Woods and and the PGA, because everybody's a huge golf fan now because Tiger Woods had a uh, you know played a great tournament and won. Um, Uh, And, you know, I wanted to get your take on this because, you know, especially from analyzing the long term implications of, you know, Tiger coming back, being successful and, you know, maybe giving the PGA Tour a little bit of a a lifeline to sort of generate more interest in the sport and help kind of um, pad themselves for when the Tiger inevitably has to retire. Because, I mean, he's like... You know my age. We're we're getting towards our mid forties now. We're we're not, we're not going forever. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. You know it's uh, gosh. Tiger is, is is an interesting phenomenon, and golf is interesting as a sport just because it doesn't necessarily correspond into dollars and cents. Like Tiger draws a huge audience on TV. But that doesn't necessarily correspond to, like, selling golf clubs and golf balls. I mean, Phil Knight had a a pretty famous statement not long ago, maybe a year or two ago, where he basically said, you know, not even Tiger Woods could have made golf – not not, not even Tiger Woods – Tiger Woods wasn't able to make golf profitable for us in 20 years. Now, I'm not talking about shirts, selling shirts and, uh, you know, golf apparel. I'm talking about selling, you know – Clubs and putters and, uh, you know, golf equipment. Um, that does, that doesn't necessarily correspond. Uh, so for companies like Callaway and Titleist, not really that, it doesn't really matter all that much. Um, you know, of course for, uh, the broadcast networks for the tournaments, um, for Tiger's sponsors, uh, yeah. I mean, he draws a ton of interest. But I think long term, you know, it's not Tiger that's going to keep the game going. It's going to be things like Top Golf. Um, you know, I, I read an article earlier in the week and getting it running pro tournaments where the we're playing you know nine holes or twelve holes um, and and making that the norm um, because just like this generation isn't going to watch 48 minutes of an NBA game. They're probably not going out for five hours and playing around a golf on a Sunday morning either, but they can commit to an hour and a half and doing like, you know, nine holes maybe. So, um, you know, I think again, it's just about understanding, um, how to fit it into the consumer schedule with everything else that people want to do and, and all the other options. And, um, yeah, I mean, long term, no, mm-hmm. I, I don't think Tiger has like, Huge impact because, like you said, I don't, Tiger's not going to be around for the long term, um, and Golf hasn't done, Golf has actually done a terrible job of developing young stars. Um, I mean, for as many good young players as there are on the tour, uh, I mean, almost none of them move the needle. So, actually, none of them move the needle. So. Um, yeah, uh, Tiger. Tiger is exciting. Um, you know, the Ryder Cup I think certainly put a little bit of a damper on the Tiger versus Phil match, right? Uh, with both of them playing so poorly, or Phil barely playing and Tiger playing poorly. Uh, so, yes, um, I think that type of event is interesting in terms of like drawing a new golf crowd um, or or the type of, of crowd. I think it's overpriced. Um, I don't think it's going to do particularly well, um, but it's worth a try, right? Uh, and like I said, I think it's going to, it's going to have the, the, the demographics going to be young. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, and, and, and the challenge golf faces is the challenge I saw. Um, you know, if you look to Australia and I forget the name of the tournament, but the way that they uh, have adapted cricket to meet the demands of a chain, you know, a changing demographic. Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of those sports need to just be, you know, there's a there's a place for nostalgia, right? I, I preach about storytelling all the time. Um, and there's a certain amount of that that really needs to be ongoing. But the thing is, it's like nothing necessary. You can still have the same game and not be sacred to the rules that they made 100 years ago. And I think that's really what the, the key point is. Is like you kind of always have to be adapting to your market and what people want to consume now. Because your job as a, you know, because that's what they are. They're like me. They're, we're marketers, right? If our job isn't to reform our market. It is to serve our customers, and the more you can keep um, that in mind, I think the more successful they'll be. Um, you know, and, and you, back to you, do a fantastic job of that. Um, so, Corey, how can people find you on the internet? Give us everything. We got YouTube. Yeah, so we
1: our got- website is johnwallstreet.com. com, uh, and you can sign up there for our daily newsletter, uh, which is free. Uh, our Twitter handle is at Howie Long Shorts. Um, and Howie Longshort is our finance finance analyst. Um, So you'll find Howie Active on Twitter, and we have the YouTube channel, uh, which is the John Wall Street YouTube channel, uh, which also has just kind of gone up recently, and uh, we'll be adding, like I said, new video content on Mondays and Tuesdays at 11 a.m. We'll be uh, releasing our weekly shows.
0: No, that's great, and again, I would encourage everybody to sign up and follow along with with you, because, I mean, that's, you know, I find the stuff valuable. I read it every day. It's great. And um Corey, I want to thank you for taking so much time to talk to me today. Um it's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, this was fun. Um I'm happy to come on whenever. Oh, awesome. Well hopefully I'll have you back then at some point. Maybe Something once week. you're um you, you know, like once you get to the two this the two million uh subscribers, we'll have you back on. I hope it's this year. That would be great. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be great. Thank you so much, Corey. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Corey Left from John Wall Street. I would encourage you to check out what he is doing at johnwallstreet.com. You also follow him on Twitter at Howie Longshort. You can find me on my website. That's davewakeman.com. You can send me an email. Dave at DaveWakeman.com with suggestions about guests, comments about the podcast, ideas, questions, concerns, whatever you'd like to do. You can also get that newsletter I talked about in the introduction, The Business of Value, by sending me an email. It's my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com with the subject line newsletter. As always, I would love it if you follow me on Twitter. That's at David Wakeman or connect with me on LinkedIn. I try to be pretty active on all those places. And finally, if you like what I'm doing, with the podcast. I'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave me a comment. These things add up and they help us out a lot. So until next time, thanks for being here. I'll talk to you again soon.